Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And with tax season approaching, it's time to call in our tax whisperer, Ken Williams of CLA, tax specialist, longtime tax specialist. And you know some of these exotic uh, deductions you can take. Before we get to that, let's talk about the less exotic ones, like charitable deductions. Have the rules for that uh, changed recently? There are limits on it now, right? Yeah, there have always been some limits on it. For a while during COVID, the IRS actually, or Congress actually lifted those limits. Um, and now they're back to the, the former limits of generally 50% of your adjusted gross income. But most folks aren't giving away over half their income to charity in any given year. So that's pretty easy to, to stay within that. Now, the documentation, though, is something that is always... Um, a question. Can you just use a canceled check, for example, or the fact that you uh, you have a, a record of it on your on your credit card statement? What do you have to provide to the IRS should they decide to question your claims? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that's rec- receiving increasing attention. Um, Treasury figured out a long time ago that Uh, they can raise a lot of money by denying deductions, not because they aren't legitimate deductions, but because you don't have them adequately documented. And charitable contributions are one of those areas where there's ample uh, success in the past of the IRS being able to disallow those deductions, not because you didn't make them to an appropriate charity, but because you didn't retain the right documentation. So, for example, donations of over $250 you're required to have an acknowledgement letter from the charity that stipulates the amount that you donated and that also includes the language that says that no material goods or services were received in connection with that donation or exchange for that donation. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that letter, they can deny the deduction, even though you got the canceled check, even though the charity acknowledges the contribution and so forth. So, that's an important one to to get those letters and stick them in your file. Uh, and you also can't come up with that later two years later when you're audited. You have to that letter has to have been received by the time you file your return. I see. Well, most charities, I find anyway, are wise to that and they they include that language. So that that's basically the the safe harbor. As long as that language is there and you got and, and you had the receipt at the time of the donation, it counts. That's right. Yeah, they're they're most charities are becoming very good at, at sending those statements out. Um, where it becomes a bigger problem is in non-cash donations, donations in kind. So, think of the person who takes a bunch of things to Goodwill or their local thrift shop, makes a contribution there uh, of items of household items, clothing, and so forth. Um, The IRS has had success in challenging those donations, A, because they're not documented, or B, because, you know, they, when you drop those items off, they give you a slip of paste, a piece of paper, and, and the individual just writes down what they donated. But if that charity hasn't acknowledged it, hasn't initialed it, or whatever, the IRS could challenge that. And so it's really important that you, Document the contribution. I suggest, you know, pull out your phone, take a picture before you drop those things off of what you're donating, uh-huh. and then write down on the slip what you've donated and get them, make sure that someone there is initialing it so that 
it's there's a written acknowledgement with the date and the description of what you donated. Really? So it's not just enough to take the flyer they hand to you at Goodwill unless it's actually signed and itemized? Well, yeah, you're kind of at the mercy of the auditor if it comes up as to whether they'll accept that. But uh, technically, they don't have to if they, they've been successful at challenging that where there was no separate acknowledgement by the charity of the donation. The other thing that happens in this area, of course, is we get storms and uh, limbs fall and sometimes it damages property. You can make a claim for casualty losses after a storm, can't you? Well, yes and no. You can, um, but the ability to deduct those losses has always been limited. And actually, right now, from 2018 through 2025, the casualty loss deduction has been temporarily suspended unless you're in a federally declared disaster area, and then you're allowed to take that deduction. It's always been limited to the amount by which the loss exceeds 10% of your adjusted gross income. So it's got to be a fairly substantial number uh, in order to claim that loss. Now, if you're a business, those same limitations don't apply. There's much more ability to, to claim a loss if it's a casualty loss from your business, say from a uh, tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake or or just a terrible windstorm. But um, when you're an individual, that currently that deduction is is pretty limited. Any other surprises the taxpayers may face this year? There are not a lot of big surprises. There actually are some opportunities. Going back to talking about charitable contributions, one of the big strategies there is, you know, Dave, only about fourteen percent of taxpayers are estimated to itemize their deductions now with both the increase in the standard deduction and the elimination of some of the deductions we used to take or limits on the deductions we used to take. But we have a lot of people who could benefit from what we call bunching their deductions, and that's particularly uh, useful when it comes to charitable giving. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when you've got someone who uh, normally doesn't have enough itemized deductions to benefit from that. They're better off taking the standard deduction, which for 2022 was about $26,000. So let's say they've got $15,000 in mortgage interest and another uh, $10,000 in property taxes, and that's about it. Um, they would be better off taking the standard deduction. If they give $2,000 a year to their charity, um, they're only barely able to itemize. But if they instead said, I'm going to bunch my deductions, I'm going to give 4000 this year and instead of 2000 a year for mm -hmm. the next two years, it gets them over that threshold so that they get a larger deduction this year. The $4,000 gets them over the standard deduction. They benefit from that charitable contribution. And then next year, they're able to take the standard deduction and get that full benefit. So mm. there's some advantages to bunching deductions. Uh, and one of the things that can be done is what's called a, a donor advised fund that allows you to put money in a fund, get a charitable deduction for the money that you put in the fund. And then each year that fund makes donations as you advise them hmm. to specified charities. So you get the big deduction up front, you fund it up front, but then they can trickle it out. Say you wanted to make a donation of you know $5,000 a year to your alma mater. Right. You could front load that and put 10 years worth of uh, donations in there, get a big charitable contribution deduction this year, and then 
those funds get sprinkled out as directed by the Donor Advice Fund each year. Ken Williams from CLA. Ken, thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. 520 is closing from I-5 to the east side all weekend, but the expansion project will reach a big milestone during this 54-hour closure. Let's go to Chris. And this closure begins at 11 o'clock on Friday night, and 520 will remain closed through early Monday morning. Nothing new for us. The Washington Department of Transportation has done this a lot as it works to finish the Montlake lid portion of construction. Washdot Steve Peer with what's on tap this weekend. The reason why we need to shut down 520 is we're placing girders, and we're, we would be placing them over live traffic, and we don't want to do that. So what's the big deal? Washdot's been installing girders on the new three-acre Montlake Lake lid for months. We are putting our final girder up this weekend. We're putting up 37 this weekend, but it will be that 37th girder that we put up this weekend will actually be our 513th girder for the entire Montlake project. That final girder is a big deal. More than 200 of them went into the new eastbound lanes from Montlake to the floating bridge. The rest created the lid over the freeway. And yesterday, I was able to walk up to the north end of what will become the new pedestrian and bicycle bridge that goes over the freeway. I was about 50 feet up, and this new bridge is impressive. It's not just some simple path over the freeway. Originally, we were calling it a land bridge because it's 73 feet wide. And only 14 of those feet are for the bike and pedestrians. So there'll be green space on both sides. Really be a nice way for bicyclists and pedestrians to cross the freeway. And it's created what I think will become one of the more popular picture spots in the city. Up here, we're also going to put a little lookout which you can look north over Lake Washington. It's kind of an unprecedented view. You get an elevated view of the east end of the cut, the crew house, and the east end of Husky Stadium. On game days, I think this would be a great spot for a picture, especially with all the boats in the stadium behind you. It won't be ready for this fall, but look out for this. I expect this to be a very popular Husky picture spot. Now that I've gotten all the bicyclists and pedestrians excited for that new bridge, the bad news for this weekend? What's different about this weekend's closure is uh, the 520 trail will be closed, so we can't even get across the lake even if you're on a non-motorized you know, vehicle. So this is a complete shutdown of 520 access, and Pierce says workers will use the time to do a bunch of stuff. We've got some drainage work. We've got some electrical work. We always do. We've got some potholes that we need to fix. So we're doing a lot of work over the weekend when no one's on the road. The Montlake Lid Project scheduled to wrap up in early 2024, but Pierre told me the new eastbound lane should open this summer, possibly in July or August. That would give us three lanes in each direction from Montlake to 405, and westbound drivers will no longer have to share their lanes with eastbound drivers. Wow. It's a new era. Yeah, it is. And that pedestrian bicyclist bridge is massive. Um, it's like the Mercer Island lid, right? Yeah, I mean, and yeah. again, well, well, that's and this pedestrian bridge is separate from the lid. Uh-huh. It's its own thing, and it's really big. Wow. Time to get the update on what's happening in Olympia. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, and they've been talking about school recess. Why is school recess a big deal? 
Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because I want to explain why it's a big deal and put in perspective why I picked it to talk about. Because, again, today's day 46 of the 105-day session, and tomorrow's a big day where if you don't have your bill out of certain committees and ready to go on its vote for a vote on the floor of the House or floor of the Senate, it's kind of dead. So this is like the second round of the NCAA playoffs. The, uh, <laughs> the first round ended last Friday. The second round ends tomorrow. And you have to move on. And uh, so we have these bills that are now already starting to go into the House floor, the Senate floor. And believe it or not, you know, the bills that are going in through right now are ones that pretty much not controversial, like the Susasaurus Rex, you know, the state dinosaur that passed the House. It's now in the Senate. That's good. Um, so, uh, but recess was one of those bills where there was actually some contention. Most bills have been unanimous, but this one was why was contentious and it basically requires public schools to provide daily recess for all elementary students with a minimum of 30 minutes in each school day unless the day is shorter like a short school day now john braun who is the republican minority leader in the senate kind of put this whole thing in perspective it's very disappointing that the first education bill off the floor of the senate is about recess when we have only one in three children passing at grade level for math and reading i think we got our priorities wrong that's the Republican point of view. Now, Democratic Senator Twina Nobles is the bill sponsor and explains why recess is a requirement that is needed. Washington state law does not require recess and schools are allowed to exclude students from recess in response to behavioral violations. And I do believe that's counterproductive. Now, Republican Senator Mike Patton says why he voted against it. He, you know, all the Republicans voted against it and one Democrat. And here's what he had to say. This was a solution looking for a problem that didn't exist. We, we have not heard from our school districts or our constituents that there's a big problem with recess, that local school boards are handling this. I mean, why have local school boards if the legislature is going to become the great school board in the sky? I'm curious if, uh, if there's a problem student who's like bullying kids on the playground, why, why shouldn't they be denied recess uh that's a great question uh but that's that's uh i i think that she took it to another level in her answer there about bullying on the playground because she then went on to say that the safest place for kids to actually have recess is at a school that's where it's supervised and Mm -hmm. so um but she's pushing that I just found it interesting that this is the one first education bill to come out and it has, and it's the most contentious vote so far yeah. that I've seen in the first 46 days. So let's talk about the property tax now. Now, property tax, the House Bill 1670 erases the 1% limit and repeals portions of a state law that was passed in 2007. This was a Tim Eyman thing. And as soon as it went to the Supreme Court, they nixed it. Governor Gregoire back in 2007 had a one day uh, called for a one day session, both the House and Senate bipartisanly uh, voted to support this is basically it prevent just basically sets a 1% limit on local taxes like the cities and counties can not raise it more than 1% every year. But this changes it to three up to three percent based on inflation and population now democratic representative tim orange explains why he sponsored the bill uh, local governments fund and maintain about half of our local infrastructure and are limited in their ability to get the resources they need that their communities expect now mary long of the conservative ladies of washington spoke against it this would make the already out of control property taxes even worse especially those on fixed incomes and in marginalized communities We've already had to tighten our budgets and would appreciate the government doing the same. 
And that was kind of the the the, the refrain that uh, John Ross Kelly said when uh, and other people who opposed it. Most elected officials don't have a revenue problem; they have a spending problem. Property valuations continue to rise, and new construction is added each year. Well, one percent just refers to the the amount they can raise it without a vote. But communities are always adding extra property taxes on. And if you vote on it, it you know you can see your property tax go up by more than one percent. I know mine got went up by more than one percent. Well, well, yeah, those are the, those independent levies. Yeah. yeah. So this is just basically the local and city government. To fund their operations, mm-hmm. uh, this is basically targeting that you know b- building the roads and paying the firemen and all that stuff. That's that's part of this increase, and it could only you know three percent every year uh, a raise. It could start adding up, especially as the house value goes up. So you can do the start doing the math on that one. Right. Let's talk uh, about this natural gas issue. Yeah, I thought this was interesting too because basically this is a bill that targets just one company, and it's. Puget Sound Energy, and this is all about the climate, I won't say the Climate Commitment Act, but the climate change legislation that the governor and a lot of Democrats have been pushing through the state that's basically starting to phase out the use of natural gas. Now, this prohibits gas companies serving more than 500 natural uh, retail natural gas customers. That targets, that's PSE. They have 800,000. There's nobody close to that many uh, in the state of Washington. But what it does is says that after June 30th, any new gas lines to a residence or a business, a small business, not the super big ones, you can't put it. You can't put in a gas line after June thirtieth of this year. Really? Now, Matt Miller told PSA lawmakers that why the company is actually in favor of that because of the pressure the company's under right now to meet those states' climate change energy standards. So, as we've been contemplating these laws and what it's going to take to achieve the state's public policies going forward, that's how we came to this, to look at our company more as an energy services company that serves gas and electric rather than a gas company and an electric company. Yeah, so that's interesting that the big gas provider... They're in favor. Well, I mean, I can see that. The thing I like about natural gas is in a power outage, I can still keep my furnace running because I get my generator, you know, to, to spark the furnace, and then the gas supplies the heat. It's very difficult to, if you only have electric heat, to keep the house warm, unless you've got a really good fireplace. Well, let me skip down to the uh, the, the two bites down there, yeah. Dave. Uh, Carolyn Logie of the heart, of the hearth patio and Barbecue Association Washington, I didn't even know there was such association, uh, <laughs> asked that there be an exemption for people who need supplemental heat because of a power outage. Whenever the power goes out, we are consistently seeing people looking for some sort of backup or supplemental heat for when that power goes out. We need to make sure that there is some way to continue to run natural gas for supplemental heat. Yeah. So that's a big issue because we have so many power outages here and people do rely on that uh, extra resource and propane and propane. You know, they were saying that propane tanks, there's a lot of legislation, uh, local legislation on where you can put a propane tank as a backup. And a lot of places you can't do that if you want to have a gas backup heater uh, using propane. Now, Democratic State Senator Steve Conway of Tacoma asked Miller about the impacts about the state's this eventually slow elimination of natural gas. And what concerns me here is that we're going to lead to a real devaluation of property and an increase in costs for people to basically transition to electric. You have our commitment to work to do our best to limit that impact. And that's PSE saying they're going to do their best. So, Dave, that's I thought uh, these are three bills that I thought were very interesting today. Yeah, I think you're right. Matt Markovich covering legislature for us this year. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. 
your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. For three decades, Mike Peterson was employed as the custodian at Plymouth Middle School in Minnesota. But recently, he earned a new title. This old dog is learning new tricks. The school district was facing a shortage of substitute teachers. School principal Leah Ward telling CARE 11 TV. I know our human resources department has done a lot of different work, you know, trying to recruit in different ways, and we just are still seeing a shortage. So Peterson dropped the buckets and brooms and got to work. He had to go back to school, too, night school, because first he needed his bachelor's degree to become a teacher. Students hadn't seen him in months, and when he returned... They were elated, surprised he was now a teacher. Fellow teacher Paula Engel says he has a special bond with the kids, having observed and listened for decades. I think kids need different role models and with different backgrounds, and I think the kids can relate to that. We've worked together for a very long time. (laughs) He's 64. He could have retired. When asked why he became a teacher, Peterson said, It's my family. These are the people I supported. He took care of the building. He took care of all of our needs, and now he's moved into his new role, still taking care of us. Peterson subs at other district schools, too, but he says Plymouth, that place is special. 748, and now from the Gian Ursula Show, here is G. Scott. I hear you've been uh, tweeting about Deion Sanders, Neon Deion. Wasn't he called Neon Deion once upon a time? Creflo Dollar. (laughs) What? That's what I called Deion Sanders. Why? You're, I'm just uh, whatever. He was, a, he was a good. He was a good football player. Great, good, good for right. him. Now he's, he's a coach. Now, now he's a coach, and now he just says the most reckless things in the world. What do you got for us? Well, just uh, do, you, do you have the setup for you? you want me to say? Yeah, no. I, oh, uh, apparently, he said he was interviewed about uh, how he how he chooses uh, players for positions, and he says he wants quarterbacks to come from two parent homes. But when he's looking for a defensive lineman, Ugh. he wants him to be a sing- to have a single mom and is and be hungry for the position. Yikes! <laughs> now, first, yeah, listen. Could you imagine if a white head yeah, coach? Said I was just going to say. Could, could, could you imagine if a white head coach had said, oh, and by the way. Well, I he- can't imagine it because reckless things have been said before by white coaches, <laughs> hold on, hold on, but that's pretty bad. No, but wait a minute. He also, Dion also says. I want my defensive lineman to come from single mamas, single mama households, because they hungry. Eesh. Yeah. I don't like that. All right. So his quarterback situation, let me get to the quarterback. Let's go with the, the quote. Well, we have different attributes. Smart, tough, fast, disciplined with character. Now, quarterbacks are different. We want mother, father, Dual parent, we want that kid to have a 3.5 GPA and up because he has to be smart. Not bad decisions off the field at all because he has to be a leader of men. Let me just set the stage for you guys. Colleen, you are the head coach and Dave Ross, you're the offensive coordinator. And down the street at a high school, the son of Tom Brady is the future quarterback. You guys are the head coaches and offensive coordinator of this college team, and you have an opportunity to go and recruit Tom Brady's son. Okay. If you use Deion Sanders' model, right. you're not going for Tom Brady's son because he comes from a single-parent household. Most recently. And you want to hear the hypocrisy? Hmm. You think... That if Deion Sanders puts this out there, 
you think that he himself would apply that to his starting quarterback. Mm -hmm. His starting quarterback does not come from a two-parent household because his starting quarterback happens to be his son. Why did he say this, though? Because it's Dion. I don't know. Because there are people in America right now that, yeah, they love what Dion says because it speaks a certain type of way, Mm. right? Like, that is absolutely awful. How did the players feel about this? I don't know. Well, they ain't saying nothing. If you're in Colorado, you're not saying anything. You want to keep your scholarship. But I just want to, the whole point about about this is this. There's no study. And by the way, I keep asking. I keep asking on Twitter. Send me a study. Mm -hmm. Send me a study that says that a quarterback will be better from a two-parent household than it would be from a household with a single parent. How about a how about how about a household where one of the parents dies? Mm-hmm. Same household? Is is this completely out of left field? Then I mean, I thought I, when I read this, I wasn't sure it was even no, it real. Uh, because <laughs> don't they? Is that why they have a combine? I mean, the combine is to show how athletic and 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 how smart you are. And as far as I know, do they do they? Uh, do they care about the family situation of the people who compete in the combine? Do they score them based on that? I doubt it. They score based on you, right? It's based on, on, your on performance, you. right? Like, I mean, is it is it possible to do bad things coming from a dual parent household? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How come the University of Colorado hasn't stepped in and gone, "Hey, like you can't you can't say stuff like this. That looks bad on our university." Why is it because he's the highest paid employee? I mean, all football coaches at colleges are. It's strange. What's the deal? I, I don't. Know. I feel like the student body needs to push back on this. I don't know. I mean, it's Boulder, Colorado. They were, I think, in the Pac-12 last season. They won one game. You know, oh, I so. suppose Mike Leach said stuff. You know, and and nobody can, can came I just, for him can either. I, can, I, can I say this? May he rest in peace. Mike Leach never said this. He never said this, but he, <laughs> I mean, he did. Man. He did act a certain way, yeah, say certain. Yeah, you know that never. many found controversial. Like and, I said, there's. I'm not saying what coaches might think, right? I'm not into yeah. that, but I know that lately, within the last ten years, there's no coaches that have come out yeah. like this and literally said, "I want my defensive linemen to come from single mama households." Because those linemen are hungry. Mm. G. Scott, 9 o'clock on Coyote News Radio. Thanks, G. 848 Seattle's Morning News. Mickey Gomez is here. Good morning, Mickey. Good morning. There's a crisis in the uh, nursing community with uh, nurses so burned out they're just quitting. And one of them is, has attracted quite a bit of attention on the Internet. Her mm-hmm. name is Katie Duke. And what got her into trouble? So she is popular on TikTok. And she tells it like it is. She's also a stand-up comedian. So she's not holding back. She's throwing punches. Uh, you know, administration, hospital administrations think she's, you know, throwing low blows and that she's just talking the dirty about, uh, you know, what goes on in hospitals. Now, right now, I, I was reading another article, this one in Forbes, about how nurses are quitting because they're just, they're fed up. They're burned out. They're overworked. They're overpaid. The trauma is real, and there's just not enough of them. And they get all the pushback from patients, too. They do. Oh, they get abused. They do. Um, my wife will come in after work, and she'll just say, we lost another nurse today. And my nurse, my, my wife is a mid-level practitioner, so mm-hmm. she she's she's not a nurse. She, she actually has her own patient 
load and uh, she practices bone marrow transplant. And let me tell you, those nurses, they are on it. They save lives. Um, when there's a rapid response, it's the nurses that respond to the rapid response and they're the ones in there doing compressions, administering the medications and they're saving lives. And then once the nurses are burned out, they look at the residents, the doctors, the PAs, and they're like, your turn, your mm-hmm. turn. Your so, turn. so she yeah. started this TikTok channel mm-hmm. because she's a comedian and it's an outlet, but also because right. she was getting burned out and frustrated. Did she get fired? For doing all that? Um, she just won't get hired. She okay, left. So she, she left. She and now, left can't, get and now hired. can't get hired anywhere. Nobody wants her. There's another nurse out there that I do follow on TikTok just because I like his content, not because he's a nurse, but muscles and nursing. And uh, he's just this big beefcake and he's a nurse and he's gotten into a lot of trouble. And he's actually um, talked about how no hospital will hire him anymore. And that's because they go on social media and they talk about the ugly, uh, the ugly side of nursing and how, you know, since COVID-19, it's just been really difficult well, for them. What's the problem here? Is it that nobody wants to get into nursing or the hospitals are cutting costs? So it's it's lots of things. Yes, it's it's all encompassing, right? A lot of people don't want to go into nursing, so they're seeing that uh, you know that applications are down, or that um, when nurses do get hired, they're being hired um, with very difficult contracts. From what I've heard, um, the contracts don't pay them as not pay them enough. Um, so a lot of nurses do end up becoming travel nurses because it pays more. Uh, they be, they work for a locum as a locum, and um, what's that? So a locum is someone who. Who you the hospital will hire to come in and you don't work for the hospital you work for an agency and you fill in like where you are needed yeah it, it's like a nurse freelancer is that and they make I, a lot of money I'm curious though how does that how does that jive with patient care I imagine when you're established in a hospital and you have time there and you get to know the doctors and everybody like that helps with patient care it sounds like freelancing nurses might not be the best well for a lot of nurses it is though I do mm. have a friend who is a free uh, a freelance, I guess that's what we could call her. She's a locum. She's a locum nurse and she travels. She's been to San Francisco. She's been to New York. She's been to Texas. That's where I met her in Texas. Now she's in Ohio. She's in Cincinnati and she loves it because they pay for her lodging. They pay for her car. They pay for her insurance. They pay for like she gets a lot of benefits. And on top of that, she gets a really high salary and she doesn't work for the hospital. Again, she works for the agency. I don't get it now. So if the hospitals evidently are paying more for these uh-huh. Local nurses. Why right. wouldn't they just staff up and pay for regular staff nurses? That's a question for the ages. Hmm. Why won't anyone why won't, pay a living why, wage? Exactly. Huh. A lot of the nurses are um, are unionized. I know that uh, Washington nurses, Washington it has a mandatory union uh, for nurses here in our state. And I know for the most part, a couple of friend nurses that we do have, they're compensated okay. Um, they just recently got raises at the hospital that uh, I know that they work at. But those raises were necessary. They hadn't gotten raises in over 10 years. Oh my goodness. So it was time. Um, but it, but it is absolutely crazy that, you know, a nurse can quit and then go back and work for the same hospital as a locum making almost double what they were making before. Is it because Something's they, out of line. I mean, do, do, do hospitals have like seasons, like high seasons and low seasons? Of maybe, course. Maybe that's the reason for it. Then. Maybe they, there they is. They want to be able to hire people when they need them and then say bye-bye when they don't. Well, I know that over the over the course of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic, that over 330,000 medical providers left the industry. Wow. Wow. And that was according to uh, one of the websites that I went to. I, ca- I can't remember what the name was, but it was, it, it was about um, just the statistics of who's working, who's not, who's 
leaving, who isn't. Yeah. And um, it was astronomical. I know that my my wife uh, is burned out. Yeah. You know, th- th- it's it's all constant overtime. Every mm. week it's overtime. And, and when even you say she's on, burned out, is she still working? She's still working, well, but it's... How long can that last? I mean, I don't know. But you did mention a nice benefit is she gets... Two she gets months two off months a year. Off a year. So her month, month, chunks, yeah. her month starts in four days. That's a great way so to prevent burnout. She'll be off for another month, but during that month that she's off, she's working six overtime shifts. What? Huh. Yes. Because they <laughs> so, need her to? Because, because they she wants need her to. to. Oh, okay. They need her to. So here, take so, a month off, but we need you back six times. <laughs> they're short 10 providers. They're short 10 providers oh. in her department. And that's not even including the amount of shortage that they have in nurses for the nurses. How, wow. how do we? Oh, we're running out of. I was going to say, how do we? How do we get more people in medical school and nursing school? And I mean, that's maybe that's for tomorrow. Maybe that is. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.